Welcome to this week's episode of Mixed Methods, and the second in our series about the future of UX research. Moving inefficiency from researchers to research operations is not a great way to do operations. If there was one person to ask about research ops, it would be our guest today, Kate Towsey. Kate has been working in this field for years, but what really changed everything was her decision to start a Slack group. What she thought would be just a few practitioners exchanging best practices has actually turned into a worldwide movement. So I wanted to pick Kate's brain about her journey and what she's found most helpful in setting teams up for success. I believe that understanding how to effectively scale research within an organization is crucial for UXR to continue to grow at the speed and scale that we're currently experiencing. Today's episode is brought to you by DScout a remote research platform that helps you learn from more people more impactfully in less time. DScout sets you up to do fieldwork from the office by connecting you with participants via their smartphones. Get qualitative studies completed in a matter of days. Head to dscout.com mm to get started. This is Ariel Sianflon and you're listening to Mixed Methods. Today's episode, the future is scalable. I'm so excited to have Kate Towsey on the show today. And Kate, I thought that we could just start with a brief introduction to you and uh, what you're up to right now. So I um, am working as the research ops manager at Atlassian, uh, based in Sydney. And I moved to Sydney 10 months ago now. Um a whole new home, a whole new role, uh, moved away from contracting for the last 10 years on research and research operations and actually content strategy right at the beginning. And uh, I found myself uh, running around the world as well talking about research operations. My my life is a research operations for, for most of it. Yeah. Well, and you know, I, one thing that I think is so interesting about your career is that you did move from a role that was more focused on user experience research to a role that was more focused on research operations. And I was just wondering, you know, what was the inspiration for that? It's actually interesting because I um, started out as a content strategist when I got into research operations. I wasn't a researcher. Mm. And people are now starting to hire, which is a really great thing, and feeling like they need to find a researcher to do research operations. And in fact, I wasn't a researcher when I started doing operations type stuff. I was a content strategist. And a lot of, uh, all of my team except for one are not, not researchers, have never been researchers, and they're excellent research operations people. So I had been working as a content strategist for, um, I guess, a few years uh, in London as a consultant. Prior to that, I had worked on customer services in technology and redesigning systems for e-commerce, which in, now I realize was a little bit of content strategy and a whole lot of operations. And uh, Lisa Raykalt and I worked together on a project for the University of Surrey in the UK. And I was there as a content strategist and she was working as a user researcher. And then she invited me when she went to work for um, Government Digital Service in the UK, uh, GDS. Uh, she said, do you want to come and, and help us figure out how we uh, document our research? and how we archive it and keep it and, and know what we know. And I had no idea what that meant at the time, um, but I eventually said, yes, okay, let me come and 
and see what it's all about because that seemed like a very content strategy thing to do. And I got in there and realized quite quickly that I had to do research on these researchers because I really needed to understand what the problem was. And the thing is that I'd, I'd never really um, engaged all that much with research. This is now 2012. And um, I was working with some of the best researchers around, uh, about 40 of them, and had to very quickly learn from them and kind of test myself out in front of them um, in trying to research them and figure out what they needed. And ended up doing a good couple of years of research on what do researchers need and what how what things do researchers make and what is the process that they 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 have in doing research and what journey do these things that they make and need and use at different points, um, what happens to those things on the way. Uh, in the meantime, um, while I was trying to figure that all out and realized I'd taken on this massive thing, um, Lisa said to me, well, we actually need to use a research lab. And I said, so you, you do know that I've never walked into a lab before. And she said, yeah, but you, you just get, you get shit done. And um, you'll figure it out. Go and have a look at these labs and, and see what it's all about. And um, so off I went and looked at a few really great labs in the UK and then built GDS's first user research lab um, in 2013. And uh, that then became a three-year contract in between other contracts where people hired me as user researcher, even though I argued with them and told them I wasn't a user researcher. And eventually no one was hiring me as a content strategist because I was so kind of entrenched in that world that I had to give in and, and say, well, I do this kind of base level of research. And if that's what you're fine with, then I can do it for you. Um, and that's really where it all began. Yeah. Well, and I mean, it's such an interesting place to start, right? Like to start by researching this profession that you, you know, got deeper and deeper into. And I'm curious with that project, what were, you know, kind of the main takeaways for you when you were doing all of this research on researchers, what did you find that they needed or what was most effective in terms of, you know, organizing, um, what they were learning? Um, the main thing that I was researching at that point was um, actual documentation or assets they're making. And I spent a lot of time hanging out with information security and privacy and, and learning what the rules in cabinet office in the UK, um, so very strict rules, were around keeping data about people. And um, the main thing that I learned there and, and kind of things that I'm bringing back into my work literally this week, um, I've now got a digital librarian. Um, or researcher who's who's taking on the role of digital librarian for us to to figure out this problem again, is that researchers don't make decisions based on reports. Is my learning, and it seems to have been corroborated over the years. But you know, there's always a, an alternate argument. Um, researchers don't tend to take a, a report and read it and go, "Oh, this is great. I don't have to do the research. It's been done." Or, "Oh, great. I only have to do half the research because I can see half of it's been done." They might read it and go, "This is interesting," but I'm not, I don't know this researcher. I don't know how good a researcher they are. I don't know what their sample was. I don't know that their discussion guide was uh, accurate to my needs and so on and so forth. And so there is around this research report um, sometimes kind of un unacknowledged um, kind of a cloud of doubt around, and even if they knew the researcher, they're still not quite sure if the research quite fits their specification. And so if they do know the researcher or know who did it, they might arrange a conversation with that researcher. And that empathetic, real, I can hear you, I can understand what you're talking about, that conversation might then make them say, oh, that's really interesting. I could build on that little bit of insight or whatever. So in terms of libraries, it, it really changes the game because 
building a library that just provides PDF reports that have a, a, a cloud of doubt for a researcher around it is not necessarily useful. Um, and so what are we actually trying to do with a research library? Um, I think that's a very interesting question that I have opinions on or hypotheses around that we're starting to work on now and see if we can prove them out over the next year at Atlassian. Yeah, well, and it's so interesting to hear you say, you know, that you have hired this digital librarian and even what you just shared, because I've definitely found as well that, you know, researchers often, we start from square one, even though there actually is so much good work that's been done both in, you know, professional space or industry spaces, as well as academic spaces. And so I'm curious what, you know, what the role of this librarian at your organization will be? Is it just bringing research that's already been done up? Is it, you know, kind of tying the wider industry, the wider, you know, academic world or yeah. What, what is that role? What is the role of a digital librarian? Hmm. Well, for us, we are, as with a lot of things in the space, figuring it out. Um, it's kind of a funny thing because I'm always saying, oh, I'm figuring it out. And I might have been working on operational type things for um, since what, 2013, uh, six years now, uh, coming up for seven. But I haven't run a team. I haven't built up a research operations team in an organization like I'm doing now, which is really why I took on the role at Atlassian. Well, two reasons. One was to work with Lisa again. I guess three. Two was just Australia and, and the sunshine seemed like a great alternative as a South African to England, which had been my home for more more than a decade. Um, and number three was it really is my sandpit. It is where I make mistakes and I have been making mistakes and where I then get to learn from those mistakes and share those back out to anyone who's, who's interested to perhaps not make the same mistakes or make different ones and hopefully share those ones back to me so I don't have to do the same thing. So um, back to your question about a librarian. Georgie um, is our new librarian. She's a researcher and is dedicating a portion of her time to us over the next year. Um, well, all of her time over the, over the next year or so and possibly more to helping us solve the problem. So this week, actually, we've all been, the ops team has met in San Francisco to really look at what is our next financial year. In Australia, our financial year starts on the 1st of July. And what are we doing to meet the new, very exciting research strategy we've got from Lisa? And um, it has been with, with Georgie saying, well, she's going to go and do a discovery like I did when, when I was at GDS. Um, because I have, uh, I, I think I know a whole bunch about it. Um, but what does she find out? And what do we, the researchers at uh, Atlassian need? We now are very different to government. It's a distributed team. Um, it's structured differently. Maybe there are all sorts of things that I would never have thought about. And similarly with um, Atlassians who are going to access the library, what do they think that they need from it? I don't, my assumption is, or my, my niggling feeling is that they're probably not going to know what they need from it, but let's ask them and find out. So we've got a couple of months um, of discovery coming up on that. And then also auditing and going through what data have, you know, what how have people been documenting the research they've been doing so far? What does it look like? What kinds of questions are people asking in our support channel um, when they come to our help research Slack channel? What what are they asking for? So a bunch of desk research before we get any to any point where I throw in my kind of sense of knowing and go, I know about this. I've done years of research on this like so many years ago and, and I, I know it all. Instead of doing that, really um, diving back in again to the question, uh, what do we need to make? Yeah, I'm so in love with the idea of a digital librarian. <laughs> with so many organizations, again, you know, they're, 
there is just so much knowledge. And lately I've been, you know, kind of learning this lesson over and over as I take on new projects and really kind of try to dive backwards first and see what we already know, not only from a research perspective, but also, you know, what data analyses projects have been done that could inform this or, um, you know, what other work exists beyond, you know, the parameters of my particular company that could inform this. And there really is just so, so much value. And also I think there is a legitimacy that it brings to your work because it's interesting, you know, hearing what you're saying about researchers kind of doubting these projects that they come into contact with, because when that happens to us as individual researchers, you know, with our product teams or something like that, it, it's really hurtful. And so it's interesting that we even do that to ourselves. And I, and I wonder, yeah, I really believe in the role of a digital librarian or some sort of role like that, or even an individual practice of kind of, you know, being an, a digital librarian to kind of add that legitimacy to your work, you know, for, for everyone that you work with. So I, yeah, I think it's such a cool idea. I, I wanted to add in there, um, there are some people doing some really interesting work in the space already. And uh, Georgie, for instance, um, she's going to be getting in touch with everybody um, to find out what others have learned. Um and it's, it's people like Aaron at Microsoft. They've they've been working on a library for five or more years, I think, um, and have significant work done there. Um, and Bridget Metzler, who um, leads the research operate operations community now, um, she's got an entire team in government, in Australian government, working on on a library for them. So there are people some, doing some really interesting work in this. And what I found interesting about it is that it's at the end of the continuum of a research project in a sense. Um, you know, you, you've done your research recruitment and, and as operations, you've, you've hopefully supplied spaces for the research to happen, whether virtual or in person. You've provided spaces for the, the data, the, the raw assets, the AV, the audiovisual content or the physical assets or whatever it might be to be stored safely. And then you provide a space for their report um, to be stored or whatever kind of format it takes to acknowledge at least to log that this research happened and it was done by this person. And for me, that's one of the, my hypotheses is that's the most important piece because then that gives the researcher the, the log that we have done five um, projects on JIRA, say for instance, in the last year. And these are the people who have done it. And uh, what have they learned? Now, um, our, our model of research now is probably going to get away with some of that because we've got a researcher working on JIRA. Um, but how does that become helpful to other people across the organization to acknowledge that there is so much research going on on a product and then who they should be able to speak to? I'm sort of going off track on there and I want to come back to something that Bridget's, um, she brought up at some point and thought was interesting was almost having a meta researcher in the library because they end up with the superpower that the librarian is seeing all the reports coming through from across the organization. And while everybody else is focused on their own campfire, they're like the god of the campfires or the goddess of the campfires. They can see every single campfire. And that's a very, very interesting place to be where they can, um, if they've got a researcher's mind or researcher training, um, hopefully, they can then be able to look through this and say, hey, there's some interesting stuff coming in from our quant team, our survey squad, um, or we've got some interesting stuff coming in from support that's been analyzed and so on and so forth. And really, there's some something that lines up as a narrative here that we might be able to take notice of. Um, and it's kind of interesting talking to you about that in terms of mixed methods, where um, you are then able to look across the mixed methods that are coming into the library and and find out if there's any um, kind of consistent story that's worth a, a new insight that's worth looking at. Yeah, definitely. And Kate, you know, 
I'm interested, you have this digital librarian, but you're also talking about growing a research ops team. And I'm wondering, what does your ideal research ops team look like in terms of the roles and the responsibilities? And yeah. Yeah. So it's a great question because we are um, right at the, the apex of FY20 planning. And um, at the moment, we are, uh, we're now five people. Um, someone has gone back to research, uh, unfortunately for us, but we will get a replacement soon. Um, but very, very nice for her. So the team at the moment is uh, me as a research operations manager. And it's it's been a, a learning curve, a really good learning curve for me, learning what is a research ops manager. And I, I think I can speak for Lisa. Uh, we continue to learn how does a research ops manager work with a research leader, um, with her as head of research and insights. Um, so there's a lot of learning there for, for me personally and, and in my role. Um, and then I have... Um, Sarit and Vanessa um, leading on re- uh, research re- recruitment, and their job is to go out and find participants. Um, but also, if we ever get the time, because we're not running around finding the participants, to really design the experience for the participants. And um, Ben Cubbon in the UK did some really nice research on that, um, I guess, a few years ago now. Uh, what do they need to know at various points in their journey to feel comfortable with the process? And how does that help the researcher to have an even better research session because their participant is relaxed and comfortable and knows how their data will be used and where it will go and and all these kinds of things are lined up and and they know they're going to get their thank you gift at the end. Um, So they're working on on that. And then we have Teresa in technology, technology lead role. And her job is to look at our full technology stack across um, research recruitment, because there's actually quite a lot of technology that goes into that. And if it's not working well, it makes the the recruiters' lives very difficult. And very much for the survey team, what is our quantitative tooling stack Um, from our survey tool through to our analysis tool and and even into our customer database as Atlassian? And how does this data move from from, uh, tool to tool? It's It's a really big piece of work. And her role is also very much working on uh, with our legal team. And we've now very, very nicely got some resource from legal um, to really work with us, which is such a blessing. I didn't even ask for it. It came down from heaven. Um, and so Teresa is going to work very closely with, with Zeta to figure out what is our um, governance plan around research data and, and really tidy up on what we're doing at the moment. Um, then I've got uh, Georgie, who's just come in as, as to work on the research library. And lastly, who is there? Ah, then there's uh, two roles that I've got open and I'm kind of hoping for some headcount at some point. And the one I'm very, very excited about, and that is events and communications. This is someone who will organize all of our um, internal and external events, our summit, but also our uh, team on-sites and off-sites and our team meetings and things that we do as a team together. And when I say as a team, not just operations, but uh, within the entire research and insights team, uh, we're very much close and part of that team. We're embedded in it, really. Um, but also looking at our communications, so blogging internally and externally. We don't do any blogging externally, and I think it's a real shame because we're working on so many things that are potentially interesting to people. Making sure that we've got conference sponsorships in place that we are excited about, and also that we're all speaking at conferences, and it isn't Lisa and I, but that the really incredibly smart researchers and ops people are getting out there and, and sharing what they're doing. Um, the next piece of that, which I'm even more excited about, if I could get it right, is um, looking and working with the state on how we, um, our state management team, our workplace experience team, 
really getting um, customer experience out on the walls and into our spaces. And not just as like, here are a couple of pictures with quotes, which is great, but something possibly a little bit more creative or interactive, um, something that really engages people in how our customers experience our products. And that could be around accessibility um, requirements or anything really. Um, and I know a lot of companies are start to create, not a lot, but I have heard of companies and seen a couple of tech companies who have these kind of immersive experience spaces that make you a little closer to the customer than just a research report or a quote on a wall or something. So I'm really excited when I can get that role in, I think it's going to, to push how our research becomes impactful for it quite a lot. Even when you are in field, you can't be with your participants 24-7. But there's one thing that can be. They're smartphones. Dscout is a remote research platform leveraging just that, which saves you from missing the moments that matter. Set up a diary study and see your participants' daily lives in context. Use Dscout Live and conduct interviews on a platform actually built for research. Bring your own participants on board or handpick from their 100,000-person scout pool. To start connecting with more people more impactfully, head to dscout.com slash mm. Yeah, hearing you talk about the different roles on your team, it just sounds like you are so effectively setting up your team to have huge impact at scale. Yes, yes. There is one addition. Uh, I guess there's a couple of, one caveat to that um, and one addition. I th- there's a lot of paper cut in in the world. Didn't you? I think in all our lives we can we can talk about paper cuts um, and there's a, a lot that can potentially sink you in research operations. Um, I, I was saying the other day where, when I was talking at, at Strive in Toronto that moving inefficiency from researchers to research operations is not a great way to do operations. And, and it, has, it is where we've been for the last 10 months because there has been uh, such a radical amount of growth in my team from me 10 months ago um, to now five of us, uh, six and then, and then five. Um, that, that Even in that in itself is sort of managing what are we supposed to be doing here and, and the team, the, the research team itself growing and things like that. But you have to find time as a team to design your services. Otherwise, you're just being, you're just taking one efficiency to another team and, and, and it's not the way to do things. I say that because if you don't watch out for paper cuts, you can end up sinking underneath them and never getting, never get to the point where you design your operations. So I'm hoping to hire in someone, someone junior who can come in and take on a lot of those bits of admin, like booking room spaces and ordering cakes and condolence cards and celebration things and booking dinners for teams and all these little bits and pieces that can come through arranging. Uh, oh, the other thing for the comms person would be also team branding. Um, give our teams logos and give stickers and bunting and whatever other things that we can do to make it known what we're doing and, and what what is produced by us. Yeah. Well, and I, I love the term, uh, you know, paper cuts because I feel like so much of the inefficiency is either poorly designed systems or also just context switching. You know, I feel like with research, there are so many tasks that need to get done. And a lot of which, based on what you just said about the research operations team that you're trying to set up, it sounds like, you know, you have kind of moved from the researcher to the research operations team. But those context switch can be so costly 
you know, where you're moving from working on your discussion guide to having to, you know, respond to a bunch of emails with participants if you're doing your own scheduling or, you know, send off a couple incentives. It, it seems like it's not a big deal, but I think in the end, those little, you know, paper cuts, so to speak, can end up being really, really costly and slow down the productivity of the team. And yeah, I, another question I think that comes to mind for me is, you know, what do you see as kind of like the mission of research operations? Like, how do you determine whether you are successful as a research operations team? It's such an interesting question. Um, Rosenfeld Media really recently did a survey on design ops and research ops, and there was one result in there. Um, I'm not probably going to quote numbers specifically, but um, I'll, I'll get them wrong. But um, it was specific to research operations, and it was a question around how do you how do you measure your success? And of the people who who seem to have had teams, there was a very low percentage that have figured it out. Which indicates, I think, that uh, it's a it's a new space. It is a brand. It's not brand new. There are teams, just to be clear, that have been doing operations for a long time. At Booking.com, they've had an operations team focused on research for six years, and Microsoft is winning by a long mile with twenty years. And not just one person doing something, but big teams of people doing things and significant lab spaces and things like that. So although 2018 seems like when the, the kind of year possibly that research operations rose. Um, there is a lot of precedence. So um, how do we measure our success as a team? Um, I was chatting with um, Sarit, uh, on, who, who leads the recruitment team yesterday, and saying to her, it's really interesting because you can get in a position, just as I was saying, you can move the inefficiency from researchers to research ops, and you've just moved an inefficiency. Um, and yes, you might have gotten rid of that, that, that kind of constant context switching for the researcher, but unless you've moved that inefficiency to a bigger team who can handle them and stick on one context, you've also just moved the paper, the, the switching of context. Yeah. Um, and what can also happen is that you um, you end up becoming kind of, and, and it's, I'm hoping I express this correctly, you become in service to researchers where um, you just end up running around like becoming the PA of researchers. And that's really not our aim eventually. It's not necessarily going to help anyone and you're going to have to have a massive team to do that, basically give every single researcher some amount of personal assistance time. Um, and so a lot of what we're looking at at the moment with a team of five looking after 20 researchers or 19, wherever we are right now, we keep growing, um, is, and, and that ratio I think is about right, but it's much more about cutting the pathways so that the researchers are able to, um, they can walk the path so they can get their recruitment done, but we're not necessarily holding their hand um, or maybe we are holding the hand, but we're not doing it for them. So in a in a sense where we've been in the last 10 months, like, don't worry, we'll we'll just deliver your participants to you. And it was an enormous task. And realized, I realized that it was just not possible with the amount of people we had to deliver that. We're now saying, um, what parts of this do we have to do for you and what can you do on your own? But we're going to make it easy for you to do, do those things for yourself because we'll make sure that the vendors have money. Uh, you don't have to worry about procurement. We'll make sure that you know exactly where the consent forms are. We'll make sure that all these things are set out and are easy for you to walk the path on your own. Um, so in that case, success looks like that researchers feel that there's less friction in doing their work, but they are still doing some of the organization just because it's impossible to offer it any other way. Mm -hmm. Well, and Kate, you know, I feel like you kind of walk me through the positions that you feel are most useful to have in a research operations team. And, and I'm wondering in terms of 
you know, kind of setting up researchers to be in this reduced friction environment or, or really, you know, allowing researchers to scale these research teams to kind of scale themselves. I'm wondering if there are systems or programs that you have found to be really, you know, useful or successful. I think that you, you'll probably get more out of me if you ask me that question in a year's time. Um, are we moving into a whole new strategy, uh, something exciting um, at Atlassian, which I can't talk about. <laughs> and as a team, we've had a very interesting three days here in, in San Francisco to look at what does the strategy mean to research operations and how do we deliver on it? Um, and so we're looking at things like um, menu cards for the various types of research. So what what do you need when there's a discovery happening? How much time do we need to prepare for discovery versus preparing for uh, a cadence of usability testing? Um, we we went to the Exploratorium in San Francisco this week. Georgie organized this genius idea to go and spend some time touring the Exploratorium. And for anyone who doesn't know, the Exploratorium, I now know, is this amazing science interactive museum in San Francisco, really worth your visit if you're curious about presenting knowledge and experience. Um, it's amazing for researchers to go to. And the operations manager of the building took us around and showed us his operations for the Exploratorium, which feels very kind of off-center for a research operations team. But there were things that he shared, aside from the fact that they used Jira, that were interesting to us. And and this is talking about then about programs and systems. And they have this thing, uh, it's an E, uh, it's called a e-maintenance ticket. And a pipe bursts in the building and they've got the system. It's really cool. They showed us this whole screen where they see all the pipes and what's going on with them. And a ticket comes out of a machine, like literally kind of like out of a machine, like a receipt. And it will say, this is what's happened. And this is the tools that you need to take to that site. Like you must have a hammer, you must have a wrench and you must have a towel or whatever the story might be. And uh, this is who you need to phone and this is a story. And so you get this kind of like little menu card basically of how to approach the problem. And I love that. And we looked at that and thought, if we had something like that for the different the methods that we're going to be using as research researchers, um, and certainly the methods we'll be providing operations to and helping deliver as, as operations, that becomes really interesting in terms of working with a program manager who now gets to understand this is the menu card for discovery. Um, and then also this is how much it's going to cost most likely. It helps me to plan forward financially um, and say, well, we're planning on having three discoveries or 10 discoveries and six usability cadences, which means that it should cost X amount of money and we're going to need this amount of resource in terms of people and participants and so on and so forth and spaces to deliver on this quarter by quarter. So that's a system that we're looking at putting in place and working on at the moment, um, also with uh, Georgie's discovery pro project, researching the researchers to discover what do these menu cards look like. Yeah, it's so interesting when you find these really, really great, uh, you know, inspirational analogy opportunities. But it actually is this really interesting way to think about um, an approach or a way for like research operations to set up the research team for success and themselves. You know, Kate, something else that I wanted to ask you about when it comes to research operations is, you know, you've obviously become so well known for starting a research operations community. And I was wondering what inspired you to start that community? Sure. Um, I had spent a long time working on research infrastructure and support or something like that. I can't remember now. It was some job title like that. I remember hating it because I was like, support, I'm not support. Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, I felt like I might be the only person in the world that 
really cared about this. For some reason, um, I really care about this. I still to this day cannot understand why I'm so passionate about this work, but there you go. <laughs> I felt quite lonely. I just kind of felt like this doesn't seem to be anyone else out there that's doing the kind of work that I'm doing. And But over time, particularly with putting blogs on the GDS uh, user research blog, which became really well known, people would get in touch. And some really interesting people from the US government, from uh, companies like Etsy, and so on and so forth, just to say, hey, I've been reading your stuff about audiovisual data and, and its storage, and I just wanted to have a chat. And there were a handful of people that I got to meet over time, and I'd have these individual conversations and have very similar conversations over and over. And I started to feel that there were at least a handful of us that were really interested in this. And why did we not meet more regularly together? So I set up the Slack channel thinking that it would be me and them because uh, we'd spoken about me flying to the States to, for us to meet and actually kind of map out what this operation thing was. And uh, that didn't seem viable for various reasons um, or that it was ever going to happen. Um, so I set up the Slack and figured it will be me and these five, 10 people, not even 10, five people in there. And uh, within a couple of weeks, there were 200 people in there and not just hanging out, but really enthusiastic and really caring about the topic, which was really surprising. And of those, there was a kind of a small crew, uh, I think three or four of us, um, who gathered people I knew in the UK and then some of these people I'd known already. And uh, we devised this idea of doing workshops um, just in five spaces in our five countries to figure out what do researchers need from operations and what does this thing mean? And um, it grew to a lot more than that. In the end, we had 17 countries take part, and I think it was 37 cities. And then we took that data and made a framework out of it. And it was really based on what do researchers say are their biggest concerns at the moment. And then also just having years' experience working, knowing where the areas of weakness were in operations. Um, so I don't I no longer run the research operations community. And, and the, the only reason for that is that I found and discovered that when it, it just kept growing and growing, and it's still growing to this day, it's not 2,500 people or something like that in the space of a year, which is pretty, it's, it's mega. And uh, the amount of work that, that that's, a, that's, half, that's a half the size of Atlassian, um, that number of people. Um, the amount of work that goes into maintaining a community like that with any dignity is enormous, enormous. And I don't know how Bridget and team are carrying on with it. It's, it's really quite something. Just kind of going back for a second to what you were saying about all of the workshops and the huge amount of work that you put into this research ops community and and then this framework that came out of it. I'm curious, I guess, you know, for people who aren't as familiar with the framework, what kind of some of the top learnings were and what the the result of creating this framework was? Mm, I think the biggest was interesting for me because... Um, Without wanting to sound obnoxious, a lot of it came through and I was like, yeah, this is the stuff I've been working on for years anyway. Um, but there were some interesting things that came through. Um, was this real need for guides and templates, um, which going back to we're talking about this less friction or this uh, friction less is probably not going to happen. Um, that would be boring anyway. But um, a less friction environment for researchers to work in um, is really uh, came across as what they were looking for. So that was interesting, not necessarily surprising, but uh, yeah, give me guidelines. Tell me where to go and find the consent form. Help me know that the consent form is right. Train me on what it means to be a GDBR compliant researcher. Give me the tools and the knowledge I need to be the best researcher I can be. Make it easy for me. Um, the other important and uh, interesting thing that came out of that was really this uh, notion of team care. And we would provide uh, opportunities for learning 
um, opportunities for engaging with people in industry and inspiration like distinguished speakers or book clubs or um, get-togethers or training. Uh, like I'm at this moment looking at how do I provide um, data security training to our research team? What does that look like? Um, and things like that that can help support researchers in growing their skills. And then also things like, uh, I've spoken quite a lot about this, I think it's so important, is things like counseling in place. If you're doing challenging research or you're going into the field where you might bump into something that is uncomfortable, um, we have got, and it's known that you've got uh, access to a counselor that could that you could debrief with um, or spend time with, and that's already organized and paid for. Um, things like that are really important, and I wasn't expecting that. I'd never thought about that in operation in the terms of operations. Mm-hmm. And is that framework available just to anyone? I mean, I feel... It, it sounds like it's so useful. For example, you know, what you just shared about counseling, I've never considered that, but it makes so much sense. And yeah, I'm curious if that's a document that's available to the wider, you know, the wider audience, or if that's something that's specifically just for the research ops community. It is av- available on Medium. Um, if you, I think actually now, which is kind of amazing, um, if you Google research ops framework, Possibly my name at the end, uh, just because that's how it is at the moment. But uh, try and go for the research ops framework and see if that pops up. You should find it. And there's a PDF download and there's access to the Mural. Um, Mural, the company, have have given us free, um, well, the research ops community and, and therefore in some ways me as well, um, uh, free access to Mural to host that, which is very nice of them. Um, and so, yeah, you can look at it on the Mural and you can download it as a PDF. And I think there's a Dropbox link for that that I set up at some point. So it's available to everybody and it always makes me very happy when I walk into someone's office and see it on the wall or someone sends me a photograph of it next to their desk or says to me, gosh, this has really helped me explain to my program manager or my head of research or my head of design or whoever it might be what operations looks like and that it is a multi-skilled, multi-person job. It cannot be done by one person. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like such a powerful resource, especially just because of the thought and the time and the energy and the experience that was put into creating it. So I can only imagine that it's super valuable. Um, and I'm excited to kind of dive into that deeper myself as well. Kate, you know, as we wrap up, my last question is really, you know, for individuals who are working at organizations that either have no research operations teams or are trying to figure out how to grow a research operations team, I wonder if you have any advice for them. Sure. Um, I have an entire day of advice. I've just run a workshop called uh, uh, Research Ops 101, kind of from the ground up. Where do you start? And uh, it's easy to run around and be like, well, it's a multi-person, multi-skilled job. Um, And that's like, that's nice, but where do you start? Um, I've been very blessed in that I work with Lisa, who brought me in because she believes in operations, and she was the person who set me on this path. So I get the support that I need and I don't have to fight very, very hard for it. I need to prove points and I need to have my numbers together. Um, but not everybody has that and I and I appreciate that. So where to start? Start with one person. I am leaning and, and tested this with with various colleagues in industry who are who are running teams that if you've got five researchers, one ops person is a really good idea. And again, not to move the inefficiency and the paper cuts from five researchers to one person because that's just overloading one person, but to give them space to set up systems that make the running of the operations efficient and then they manage that. And that might be cutting the pathway for researchers to walk on their own, if that analogy makes sense. Um, So it was interesting because we are now, as I mentioned, as a team, 
Um, we are five people now to say 20 researchers. So you can look that we're we're five to one, uh, one to five rather, um, and a little bit more even. And we're still feeling squeezed a little bit. And so I'm starting to even look at this ratio or this algorithm and say, well, is it that you need slightly more in the beginning and you get to a certain point where then it's one ops person to five researchers. But to start out with, you need slightly more than that to actually get yourself off the ground and get all the systems in place because it's not just about delivering the service is about building the systems to deliver the service, and that takes a lot of time. Um, so where to start? Uh, more to your question. You start with your one person, but make sure that you focus them on a maximum of three things that your team really needs and give them the time to design the services. And your researchers will still be looking after themselves. They'll still be possibly recruiting their own participants. But hopefully this person can work on making sure that there is finances in place so they're not having to deal with procurement every three months and figure it all out because it's changed in three months or whatever the story might be. Um, that's a great place to start. Um, and if your team grows, give another ops person as soon as it gets a little bit bigger um, so that you're growing as your research team is scaling, um, your ops team is scaling along with it. Thanks for listening today. If you want to continue the conversation, join us in the Slack group for a Q&A with Kate next week. You can find details on Twitter. If you aren't already a member of the Slack group, you can request an invite under the community tab on our website, mixed-methods.org. Follow us on Medium and Twitter to stay up to date with the latest UXR trends. Special thanks to Denny Fuller, our audio engineer and composer, and Laura Lovett, our designer. See you next time.